You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcom and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. This is Proof Text. I'm Michael Halcom. I'm here with Dr. Rick Boyd. And we thought we were recording. We were recording, and then something happened. And Rick was telling part of his testimony. And uh, I was just blessed by hearing it. But you guys uh, who are going to watch this missed it. Rick, can you graciously go back through just uh, maybe you can do it a little quicker i don't know you don't have to go through all that again but just tell us we were talking about inductive bible study and kind of how our paths cross tell us again uh what is inductive bible study and how did you get into it so i'm sorry about the platform error but out of my control kind of so tell us how'd you get into inductive bible study and then what is it so you can go through sure. that however fastly or slow, slowly you'd like. Sure. Um, well, I, I was born again in 91 when I was 31 years old. And so I was 34 when God called me to seminary. And I had never come across anything like inductive Bible study. I just I just read the Bible. That's what I did. Right. I read through the Bible in full. Jody and I did in 1992 and 93 together. And then 94, I was doing it again. God called me and therefore us to seminary, Wilmore, Kentucky. We moved from Urbana, Illinois to Wilmore, Kentucky. And that's when I came across inductive Bible study. What it is, it's a, it's a literary critical, primarily literary critical approach to scripture, meaning you're not just reading the content. You're looking at the arrangement of the content, the structure of the book. How is a particular book arranged? Doesn't matter what book it is. Jonah, Matthew, Revelation, Hebrews, which is where I did my doctoral work. So every book is arranged in a particular way for intent. Uh, it, it, what it does, it helps carry the author's message and what the author wants to emphasize. The author does that through the structure and the content. And up to that point, I had been a content guy. I had you know, memorized verses. I'd come across favorite verses, those kinds of things. I think we all do that. But we'd rip them, at least I would, rip them out of its context. Right. And that's what I tended to do. So when I learned this method and I, I saw how much deeper, how much clearer my understanding of Scripture and what the authors are doing, when, that, when I understood that, uh, immediately I embraced it and I took as much IBS as I could I've used it every step along in my ministry. Yeah. Uh, the, do, um, the Lord called me to doctoral studies in 05. And I came back to Wilmore because I wanted to study under my IBS teacher, David Bauer. Yeah. And, uh, I, and so he guided my uh, dissertation, sort of. I mean, he kind of turned it over to me, but I was going to do it inductively. Yeah. And so I studied the book of Hebrews inductively and... And, uh, and that's, that's how I end up in IBS. And now I teach it. I teach it at Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, yeah. Mississippi. Been doing that for eight years. Yeah. Um, so when we think about inductive Bible study, um, we're also looking. So you'd mentioned sort of the big contours of a book, right? The literary structure of, say, an epistle or a gospel or jonah or whatever um but ibs also 
like drills down and is interested in not just overall literary structure, but literary devices and rhetorical devices as well. Um, I remember sitting in that classroom with you and Wilmore and Dave Bauer's class and hearing all these new terms. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing particularization and um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. What, what's another one? Um, causation or yeah, substantiation. Causation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, this was totally, I'd gone through four years of Bible college, right? I had gone through much of an MDiv by that point. And here I am six or seven years into higher education, Christian higher education. And for the first time, I'm learning about this, the, these literary terms from David Bauer. And it would be something of an understatement, I think, to say that for me, that was the beginning like of a seismic shift um, and super transformative. Uh, because like you, I, I probably up to that point had been what you said, a content guy. Right. And, um, now like I'm looking at this from a completely different perspective through a completely different lens. And so, yeah, just the, the value of IBS. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that terminology, you've heard Rick say inductive Bible study, IBS, as we call it around sort of the Asbury, um, Wesley circles, um, Azusa even, I think. Um, but yeah, this was a, a major turning point for me in taking that class. Uh, I had come in very fascinated with sort of the socio-cultural world, but now marrying that with the literary side, boom, like new things just started to open up and uh, then I was introduced later to, to rhetorical or socio-rhetorical stuff which is really just in my opinion kind of an outgrowth of of the IBS the literary criticism yeah um, so you're teaching IBS at Wesley you've been doing that for years now um, what has been the reception from some of your students? Has it been a game changer for some of them? Like, what have you seen happen? I've, I've had very few students who haven't kind of shaken their heads to try and clear things out because this is a wholly different approach to scripture. They, they, they Students, by and large, don't consider, like I didn't, consider um, the structure and how things are arranged and the relationships that move the, the story along or that move the, the, the discourse along. Um, for some reason, I've got stuck in my head when you're, you're talking about these structural relationships. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. I mean, the church is so familiar with right. the Great Commission. Yeah. But the Great Commission begins with the conjunction, therefore. Right. And I just blew right past that. Whenever I would read that, you know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and all of that, I, I, I had down cold when I came to seminary. But that first word, therefore, mm. indicates the movement from cause to effect. Yes. The effect is the Great Commission. As you go, make disciples. Yep. Why? Because 
And it takes us back to verse 18, the preceding verse, where the risen Jesus appears to his disciples and says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm-hmm. Therefore, because of that, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the NIV. It was one of those Bible memorization verses. Right. <laughs> but now I understood it. We do it because all authority in heaven and on earth and understanding the the Judaic background to this, there are only three things to the Hebrew. There are only three things. There is heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's heaven, there's earth, and there's the creator. That's it. His creation, and then there's the creator. And Jesus is calling all of creation, heaven and earth, to witness. It's Amen. sort of like Moses' words in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm. Therefore, and, and that's why we, we, we fulfill the Great Commission, or we, that's, that's our calling, to fulfill it. It's yeah. because. And of course, that's reinforced further in another structural relationship in Matthew, and that's inclusio, yes. where you've got at the very beginning of the book mm-hmm. and the very end of the book, God with us. Yep. You know, in chapter one, you shall call his name Emmanuel, or they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And at the very end, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that seals the whole deal. That yeah. The fact that Matthew really does center on God being with us. He's come in the person of Jesus. Right. We're called to follow him and then make more disciples. So, yeah, it's 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 very involved, but it's eye opening and it reinforces what the author, I believe, wants to reinforce because we're yeah, looking are, at how it those was are written. beautiful connections. It's fun to hear you talk about that. Uh, another one I had been another part of that inclusio that I didn't recognize until I think it was a year ago and I was preaching through Matthew chapter one. And here I am, you know, 20 years into this IBS stuff. And, and then it just dawned on me that you have another aspect of that inclusio Matthew one and Matthew 28, where in Matthew 28 says, you know, about going to all the nations, you know, baptize all the nations. But in Matthew one, you, you, essentially are getting this beautiful picture of the nations, especially with the women that are mentioned uh, in the story and some of them being of a non-Israelite background. And they are already folded in, grafted in to the story. And we're supposed to do more of that. (laughs) Um, And so that was another cool connection in that inclusio that just dawned on me recently. Um, yeah. So that's great. Um, the, the, I know you've done some preaching and you've, you, you've done teaching within the church. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you're going to give, say, a sermon or a Sunday school lesson in the church, um, how does IBS influence the crafting of the sermon and perhaps even the delivery 
of the sermon. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any insight on that. Yeah, I uh, appreciate the question. Um, I personally like to work through books. I, I don't know why that is. I don't like to do thematic preaching, yep. but you can certainly saying, do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, cause that, that's not, that's not where, where I go, but, but you certainly can do that. It still starts with the proper study of scripture. You got to start there. You can't pull a verse from here and pull a verse from there and put something together without knowledge of the context of those two verses. Yeah. You know, you're trying to marry, you're trying to put together. So I typically, if I'm going to preach a sermon, like I was asked today, if I'd preach on the 15th uh, at this church where, where my wife and I attend now, uh, and I was given a, a, a passage, Luke chapter four, I'm not going to do a whole IBS on, on the right. gospel of Luke. Just I'm going to look at chapter four within the larger context, but what you would, what you would end up doing, or at least what I do, and what I encourage my students to do is is study it properly and find kind of the center of the passage, whatever that is. You've determined you're gonna you're gonna preach on Luke chapter four and Jesus reading the scroll in the synagogue uh, in in Nazareth, and so 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 you look at that passage, and there's a lot of different ways you can go with that. Um, you can look back at the original Isaiah chapter 61, I believe. Mm. And so you, you, you can study it from that perspective. I would probably choose to study it from Luke's perspective. And you drill down to find the center. And in praying through it, you want the congregation to hear what the text has to say. Mm -hmm. Now, there's an important, an important element here that I have just recently been emphasizing to my students and that is your congregation is going to be watching you uh you know the congregation is going to follow what they see the pastor doing and if they see the pastor going from verse to verse to verse to verse from different books they're going to tend to do that without that contextual understanding and so i want to stay as much as i can within the passage so they can see the depth of the passage and not just their favorite verse. Yeah. And so that's, would, that's my approach you, to it is I want to bring introduce out them as much as I can realistically terms like understanding you don't want to dump the whole thing and on your congregation or, or would you, give, would them you start that give them a sense of the sort of describe of what's God, going on rather than might take it use seriously. the terminology actually spend time yeah, with the Lord I've, every I've learned day. enough to know no, that's a real challenge. <laughs> to know you don't want to see eyes glaze over in the congregation and mm. you know you're giving them stuff that they're not going to seminary so I'm, I'm not going to hit them with that I want them to simply understand the text they've been reading whether it's just that day or they've been reading the Bible for 20 years uh, that there's more to it in, in depth and there are connections that are simply logical and it's the literary devices that the authors were were using. They, they have a point of, you know, moving from, from cause to effect. Or they, they have a purpose in a purpose clause mm. for this reason or because. And, and so they launch into the reason for something being done. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, I, I do this thing. 
uh, I have a word of the week in each of my sermons. And um, that's usually going to be some big fancy or theological or literary term or something like that. And so my I've been doing this for three and a half years now. And my my thought behind it is if you don't learn anything else today, you're going to learn one word. <laughs> and so I'll I'll introduce them to, uh, you know, some kind of term. But, yeah, I think there there's definitely a danger of of scaring people away or overload or, you know, all kinds of things with that. Um by the way, we, we had uh, talked back in Denver back in November, and you had mentioned uh, this, this uh, everybody says, uh, and, and everybody said, and how your preacher used to say, so what? Right? Do you remember yeah, telling yeah, me? Yeah. I, I started incorporating that uh, into the, the sermon here. So um, I have three sort of staple elements. I'll, I'll now include that, and everybody said. I have a slide that says it, uh, and then I'll have the word of the week, and then I'll have the bottom line. So uh, those are three sort of stock elements that you'll find in the sermon. But well, you, you also teach Greek, and um, I'd like to hear just your thoughts on the Greek classroom. Uh, what is sort of your approach to teaching Greek, and... Uh, I also want to come back to the idea of sharing a Greek or a Hebrew word or phrase in a sermon. But let's let's go back to the classroom uh, first. Everybody has an opinion, it seems, on whether to use Greek or Hebrew in a sermon. So I'm curious to hear yours. But let's start with the, the classroom. Um, how long have you been teaching Greek? What resources do you use? What's sort of your approach to teaching Greek? Uh, my approach, uh, I, I think you have to start this... It, I, I spent 16 years in radio and, and I, I learned, God taught me whether I knew it or not, uh, to speak to, if I can, every person who's listening. And you have people all over the spectrum in okay. their capacity to, to take the stuff in. And so I've learned over time, and I do this in my classes, to understand where the students are. I don't want to talk beyond them. I also don't want my expectations to be beyond what is beneficial to them unless they can handle it, you know, and, and you know the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and so does Fred. And so uh, so my approach to Greek, most of my students, uh, if they take the four semesters of Greek, they're going to use, I want them to use it in the pastoral ministry, but I also want them to use it in their devotional life. That's something that I, I learned to do very early. Uh, I, every day I translate the Greek and every day I translate the Hebrew. Hmm. And uh, I stay in it every day. Well, that's yep. what I want my students to be able to do. And so that's my approach is, okay, this is for pastors. I don't want to go too in-depth, but they need to grasp what the text says. If they want to go further, praise the Lord. You know, I... you could not find a stronger advocate for languages than me, but understand where most of these, most of these students are, that they want to be equipped for the pastoral ministry. And so that's where I start. I use mounts, uh, 36 chapters. And it's, that's where I learned Greek when I was at Asbury, uh, they were using mounts, the first edition. Now we're on the fourth 
and he's made some changes that I, I don't quite agree with. So I temper those as I'm teaching it. But it's four semesters. It's understanding. These are pastors mostly. And we've had students that have you know taken Greek and they've gone on doing PhD work. So I know there are students out there and I've got some more in the pipeline that are going to be coming out. Right. But for most of the students, it's it's just the basics. First and second semester, it's learning the vocabulary and the grammar. Third and and I start working in some syntax. Third semester, we're reinforcing and learning a little bit more of the grammar and the syntax, but they're also learning to read. So we're actually reading passages in the New Testament. Uh, I mean, whole passages and actually whole books. And then the fourth semester is exegesis, where they learn how to take that reading and actually apply it. And we do that inductively so that IBS actually plays a part in uh, the exegesis hmm. uh, in the fourth semester. Something else that I have, have found to be an encouragement for the students, and that is um, most, of my, most of my Greek classes, when we get to about the third semester or so, uh, I get them a reader's edition of the Greek New Testament. I, I find that that is an encouragement to them where they're not just taking a class, but let me try this devotional. Let me read a verse a day or two verses a day and let them play with that. But at least they've got a resource. If you're not familiar with the reader's edition, it's got all of the words that occur fewer than this threshold. I think it's either 30 30 times yeah. or 50 times. I don't remember which it is for the Greek. Uh, but I, that's what I, I, I get my students those so that they can have that at their bedside. That's not their primary study text, but that is the text that they use when they want to do some devotional work. And right. so as they're reading along, they've already, theoretically, they've already learned their vocabulary and that gets them all the words that occur 30 or more times. Right. The words that don't occur that many times are actually in a little glossary, mini glossary below each page. So they can just look at the words that occur on that page. And and I found that to be very effective. Great. Uh, so what about, you know, the idea? So you have all these like students, potential pastors going through Greek classes, sometimes four semesters, two years worth. Um, certainly like for their personal life and study, that's beneficial. If they're going to go on to scholarly work, it's beneficial. But what about the potential pastor who goes through two years of Greek? Um, what's your opinion on sharing some of that from the pulpit? Are you an advocate of that? Are you, you, you uh, stay away from that kind of guy? What, what's your perspective? Well, studying the Bible. I mean, theoretically, every Christian, this is the way it's supposed to be. Every Christian reads the Bible. We kind of assume that to be true. I don't think it is. At least those who claim to be Christians. Uh, and so Christians need to read the Bible. Well, if you are equipped both with the inductive understanding, how to approach the scripture and look at the structure, structural relationships, how chapters and passages relate to one another, what the author intended, and you add to that the languages, how much deeper can you go? And it's 
it's not just a better understanding of a text, but this is this is the word of God. That's what we believe. So this is drawing deeper into the heart of God and coming to know him better. My best times, you, you can't really see it here on, on camera, but right back here, I've got this little green lounge chair that my dad had. And when he died, I, I ended up getting that. That's where I do my devotional. I just huh. just kind of sit in that chair morning and evening and, and I'll read the Greek in the morning and I'll read the, the Hebrew and, and then the Septuagint. I've added that to my Hebrew reading in the evening. That's where I sit and I just spend time with the Lord. And that's what I encourage my students to do. I was doing this kind of thing back when I was in Christian radio. Uh, I was in Christian radio 97 to 05, eight years. That's what I did. I, you know, I wasn't in academics. I, you know, I, I wasn't a teacher at that point. I was on the air. But what I brought on the air measurably, I mean, it was definitely a measured approach. I would share little things here and there, hmm. understanding that there are going to be listeners out there don't care at all about the Greek, but they do want to know the Lord better. And so you need to be able to facilitate that. And when I was on the air, I, I always pointed the people to the word of God, I, not necessarily the Greek. I didn't expect my listeners right. to take Greek, but I do want them to understand this isn't Rick telling you this. This is what the word of God says so that they would see for themselves. I, that's That's been, I think, the emphasis that God has placed on me because I was born again reading the Bible. Hmm. Well, you, another part of your uh, scholarly career has been working on Hebrews. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Actually, you, you've got a forthcoming uh, book, your dissertation on Hebrews with Glossa House, which we're really stoked about. Um, but let's, let's talk just a little bit about that. I mean, one of the, the pressing issues, you probably already know what I'm going to ask, around Hebrews <laughs> has to do with authorship i'm really curious uh as i was thinking about you know talking to you today i was really wondering man i wonder what what rick's perspective on this is going to be do you have a an opinion or do you you sort of plead the fifth what do you what do you think about the authorship of hebrews i i point to origin no one knows except god you know and that's that's what origin said and i tend to agree with that i don't believe it was paul um or any of the other ah. New Testament authors. I, I don't. I, I just think, but then again, he's approaching whoever the author is. And I believe it's a he because of a participial form that's masculine in chapter 11 is a self-reference to the author. So I think it's a he, but as far as who the he is, Apollos could be, Barnabas could be somebody that we don't know, probably. But I, I can't go any farther than that. Hmm. I do think the book is marvelously arranged. And like I said, IBS was the foundation of my study of Hebrews. And I see a structural relationship that's very complex that controls the book, but it makes all the sense in, uh, hmm. in the world. Do you, so from a, from a literary perspective, I mean, Hebrews has often been called genre-wise, I guess you'd say, um, it's often been called a homily or a short sermon. Um, others have called it an epistle. Uh, what's your take on the genre of Hebrews? I definitely think it's it's a sermon, um, a homily. 
and you you pick that up from uh, chapter 13 verse 22 where he refers to what he's been saying up through 1321 as word of exhortation mm. and and I absolutely agree with that I, I think that that analysis of it that's exactly what it is the quotes that we have from the Old Testament are spoken and the way the author goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between exposition and exhortation and more exposition and more exhortation and so on that's the way you would preach and mm -hmm. so I, re I really think this is a homily that has been written down and sent so we have verse chapter 13 verses 22 3 4 and 5 that close out the writing of it yeah. what what would lead you I, I know there's volumes written on this what would lead you um, to resist the notion that the, that Paul wrote it. So Pauline authorship, what, what are some good arguments against Pauline authorship? Do you have any that you can tap into right off the top of your head? Yeah. I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I, I've been in the Greek new Testament for the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years or so, just, you know, reading the Greek new Testament every day. And, and so I've read through, Paul's letters 25, 50, 100 times, I don't know how many. The, the language, the vocabulary is different. I mean, altogether different. Uh, this is a unique collection, a lot of hapax legomenon and, and one-time occurrences, right. that type of stuff in the, in, the God, in the book of Hebrews. And so I think that alone, but then I know Paul had amanuensis. I, I, he had secretaries writing in so it's possible that, you know, this would be the particular style of a particular amanuensis that he didn't use elsewhere. That's possible. Theologically, I think it's very rich, um, but it deals with issues like Jesus as our great high priest. Mm -hmm. You don't really find that anywhere else. And Paul certainly doesn't emphasize that. It just is, seems to be un-Paul-like. Gotcha. And I'm okay with, you know, I, I, like I said, I agree with origin. I don't know. Yeah. Right. But it yeah. just seems to be non Pauline and yet it fits with Paul and it fits with John and it fits with Matt. It's, theologically, it's in perfect keeping with the rest of scripture, including especially the old Testament, mm -hmm. you know, because of the way the book begins the very first verse in many parts and in many ways, long ago, God, having spoken to the fathers and the prophets, that's a reference to the entire Old Testament. The many parts, the many ways, that God revealed himself through Ezekiel by laying on his side. Mm. Or Hosea marrying a prostitute. Mm. Many parts and many ways. But in these last days, verse 2 begins, he has spoken to us in a son and uh, that's you if you if you get the dissertation that's going to be published you'll see a lot more about that stuff what what is the so for our our viewers and listeners what is the thrust i guess you'd say the thesis uh, of the dissertation what are you attempting to argue and what point are you attempting to sustain 
I maintain that the central theological motif, the, the central theme of the book of Hebrews, is not merely God speaking an eschatological word to us and to do it through Jesus. That all is true, but I think there's more to it because I believe that what God has done in the Christ event, and that's what I refer to it as, the Christ event is that he has spoken to us in sonship. That's not a gender thing. This is how he has spoken to us, that we become children of God because God has spoken sonship in the flesh. And that's what Jesus has come to perfect. That is to bring it to completion, to reach the goal God intended all along. Mm. And so that's my 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 assertion is that that is really the center of the book. And then he explains about it in detail through the priesthood, through the new covenant, through the superiority to angels, because sons and daughters are superior to angels. We're a little lower than them right now, but there is coming a time. Chapter two talks about that coming a time when we are not. Mm. And it has to be, it has to do with being a child of God. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you're, you're working. Are you still uh, dabbling in Hebrews? Are you, what do you, what, what else are you occupied with? Like what else uh, has your interest these days? Any other uh, books of scripture or theological concepts or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, that's a broad, broad question, brother. Um, I got to tell you, one of the advantages of teaching inductive Bible study is the the ability to then stretch out across the canon. And I have, you know, when you when you engage with inductive Bible study, you can't help but be drawn deeper and deeper into the text and see things you couldn't see before. Uh, And in fact, let me let me give you an example. This isn't necessarily strictly IBS. But if I could, if you would allow me, give you an example from the book of Amos. Uh, The book of Amos, I was just translating this in my chair uh, a couple of nights ago. And what I do in the evenings is I I go five verses a day. I'll read the BHS, which is the Hebrew, Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensius, the Hebrew. And then I'll follow that up by reading the same five verses in the Greek. I haven't dealt with the apocryphal books that are not in the Hebrew, but I, in dealing with the Hebrew, and I was reading Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and, and I just went, the first two verses stopped me. This is Amos 3, 1 and 2, uh, and this is from the New American Standard. I'm just doing it from there. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Mm. Now, there's a number of things I could say there about the way the Hebrew reads that kind of open that up a little bit even more. But there was one thing in the Hebrew that was confirmed in the Greek, surprisingly. Verse 2, you only have I chosen. The Hebrew uses the verb yada, which is to know. Mm -hmm. 
And the Greek uses genosko, which is to know. Mm. So both the Hebrew and then the Greek, which was faithful to the Hebrew in this, say you only, exclusively, have I known. What does that mean? That raises that question, which you've got to end up pursuing. You don't just leave it alone. You, you see something like that. And so I've got to jot it jotted down on an index card. I use index cards like crazy. Huh. I own stock in Mead, or at least I should. And, uh, and so I've jotted it down and I've got this huge amount of, wow. of index cards of things that I want to pursue. So when you ask that question, like I said, it's a wide open question, but I've got a lot of interest uh, in particular, I, I love the book of Acts, I, Matthew, I'm spending a lot of time there, love to do something in Deuteronomy or Exodus or Genesis. I'm teaching <laughs> Pentateuch this semester, so I'll be spending more time in that. Um, so I, I have uh, a lot of interests across the canon. Excellent. Let me ask you one more theological question and then we'll wrap up here. Uh, okay. So we we both come from oh, Wesleyan circles and of course you're at wesley biblical seminary and uh one of the sort of distinctives of our wesleyan heritage of course is sanctification and for the bold enough among us we often like to talk about entire sanctification and uh i know you had no idea i was going to ask you this i had no idea i was going to ask you this but I always like talking to fellow Wesleyans about entire sanctification. And um, I'm just wondering what insights uh, or insight you might be able to, to give us into the notion of entire sanctification. Can you help our proved texts viewers and listeners maybe get a grasp from your perspective of this doctrine of entire sanctification and what it is. It's, it's a theological concept. I'm always kind of obsessed with. I'm always thinking about it and wondering about new analogies uh, or ways to describe it, to help people understand it. So when, when you're talking about entire sanctification with maybe just the average layperson or the average student, you know, what would you say to them? God wants to do an entire work in you. And we see that repeatedly. We see it in the book of Hebrews, uh, but we also see it in First Thessalonians. That's the easy one to point to. Uh, May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. That's 523. And so that's the, that's the verse that I think Wesley probably used to develop the language, entire sanctification. Um, Christian perfection, yeah. that idea. It's not perfection in actions or acts, but it's heart, it's attitude. Yeah. Uh, you know, First Corinthians 13 and, and love. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a clanging gong, a resounding symbol. That idea that love needs to be at the core. Well, there's a passage. I just presented a paper in Denver, in fact, at the Evangelical Theological Society on John Wesley's um, use of, of scripture in entire sanctification. Huh. And, and so I, I analyzed that 
Uh, I'm actually talking about the possibility with a, a publisher of coming out with a book on that, exploring the 30 texts. There's something called the 30 texts that Wesley used for this doctrine and turning that into a book because the paper is kind of a microcosm of that. And so uh, in doing the study for that, I came across my favorite chapter in all of scripture, which is Deuteronomy 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, but it was for a different reason. It's my favorite chapter for a different reason. I love the last two verses. I think that's the climax of the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. But the first six verses are critical. And to summarize the first five verses of Deuteronomy 30, when all these things come to you, he's just talked about the blessings and the curses. If you keep my commandments that I've given you, these blessings will happen. If you don't, these curses will happen. 30 begins, chapter 30 begins with when these things have happened to you and you turn back to me with all your heart, mm. then I will restore you. I will bring you back from where you've been scattered. And that's where we come to verse five. Verse five kind of brings that to an, uh, a penultimate climax. Verse six is the climactic verse this is the verse of verses. God promises, if we turn back to him with all of our heart, it can't be a casual thing. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, your seed in the Hebrew, your seed, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That verse, talking about IBS, actually couches two different purpose statements in one verse. I've not seen that anywhere else. But in this verse, there are two purpose statements. The very end of it, so that you may live. This is the purpose. So you can't live without what precedes it. And what precedes it is what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. But what precedes that is the work that God does. God will circumcise your heart right? so that you can love the Lord your God yeah. with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Yeah. So the purpose of life, you're asking about entire sanctification. The purpose of life itself is to love him with all that we are. And we can't do that unless God does the work. Yeah. He circumcises the heart. That is a power-packed verse within the context of Moses' final address to the people of Israel. Mm. And so that's what I would say, you know, with respect to entire sanctification. This is what God wants to do, but he'll do the work. Yeah. If we turn back to him with all that we are. And And... I I lived my own I lived my own way for 31 years and wasn't really interested in doing that until I turned to him unknowingly reading the Bible with with kind of I I don't know I I didn't have great anticipation reading it but the more I read it the deeper I was drawn in and at a point in time Genesis 35:2 he confronted me with my sin I was born again and my whole life changed. Everything changed in that moment. Hmm. 
Mm. Wonderful. Yeah, I love that. I, w- I've, I wouldn't have uh, thought to go back to Deuteronomy 30 uh, for that, but ooh, I appreciate that. It's good to have uh, that reference in my own arsenal now. Um, mm-hmm. so I love that description of just the, the, the heart posture, the disposition of the heart, the, the mm-hmm. circumcised heart, none of it of our own doing just surrendering as a response to the grace of God. Right. Um, right. Uh, just a yielding. And I've, I've, you know, realized over the years that yielding and or, or surrender pretty much that's what the, the Christian life is. <laughs> it's just learning more and more how to surrender. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I appreciate that. That's some great insight. You know, that's, Brother, that's that's what this daily living in Scripture, mm-hmm. that's what it teaches. Because I, I can't, I don't know about you or anybody else, but I can't read Scripture without hearing His voice, without being confronted by things, yeah. whatever they might be. And uh, that's what it'll do. Like you said, it's a life of surrender. And He'll show you things you need to surrender. And and you just got to stay with it and make sure you're involved in a, a fellowship, a serious fellowship of some mm-hmm. kind. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the uh, passage in Thessalonians, um, even Paul's willing to go as far as to say that that sanctification of well, the entire sanctification or every part of us is God's will. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then he goes on to right after that to talk about how living in that manner draws peop- others to God. Right. Um, so. Yeah, beautiful. Well, Rick, I appreciate your your time and taking some time out of your day and uh, schooling us on IBS and some Greek stuff and um, Hebrews and uh, even Deuteronomy and entire sanctification. Covered a lot here. So uh, always good to talk with you. And I'm I'm glad that we've sort of you and I have sort of reconnected in in the recent, you know, recently. And that's been a blessing to me. So. I just want you to know that and appreciate the work you're doing and blessings to you on your your various ministry capacities, teaching and preaching and serving in your local church and uh, blessings to you and your wife and uh, wish you all a happy new year. Yeah. So thank you, brother. We, we like to end these episodes with a, a parting shot is what we call it. And it's often a favorite quote it can be related to what we've talked about today or completely unrelated. Um, is there any chance you have a favorite quote handy or off the top of your head or something like that? You know, you, you left that again wide open uh, because <laughs> I, I hadn't planned on, on going where we did with this conversation. That's okay. Yeah. Because if I were to think of a quote that, that impacts me uh, something that I've read, non, non biblical, and yet it is scriptural. It, it certainly is. It intersects my life. It's from John Wesley's plain account of Christian perfection, mm. which is entire sanctification. And basically the first sentence of the book, John Wesley's a plain account of Christian perfection. First sentence basically says, what I purpose to do in the following pages is to lay out how I came to understand and embrace this doctrine of Christian perfection. But the second sentence is the quote, and this is verbatim. 
This I owe to the serious part of mankind, to those who want to know all the truth as it is in Jesus. Mm. That's a quote. And that's the second sentence. And when I read that, I got tingles and, you know, all that because my soul resonated with it. I believe that's that's part of my call. I think that's why I'm teaching at a seminary, because we have the serious part of mankind who have come to learn because they believe they're being called into ministry. And that's that's my audience. And I'm, I'm trusting that the viewers, that the listeners that there is some serious searching or some serious desire to pursue. And the Lord's called me to simply share with you what, what he's shown me and let the spirit then bring it home. Mm, amen. That's great. Well, thanks again, uh, Rick. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks to everybody out there who's supporting the Proof Text podcast. It's growing rapidly and we're excited to see that um and we hope this episode as with many others has been helpful and beneficial and edifying and so until next time aloha interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start glows house can help from illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.